Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice that you are, in fact, reigning. You have been reigning. You are reigning and you will reign. You are the sovereign of all creation. You have fashioned the world by your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your creative power. But more than anything, we thank you that you have given your life, that we might have life, that we have the opportunity to praise our God for all you have done. Help us this morning as we worship, that we would worship our triune God by the power of the Spirit in accordance with the plan of the Father and the magnification of Jesus Christ. We want this to take place in our hearts. We want this to take place in this meeting together. For your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen. In preparing to sign a prospective baseball player, different organizations use different methodologies. Some use what may be called the eyeball test. In other words, they see what the player does and say, oh, well, this, I like how he goes about this. I like how he does this. I see something that I like in this player. And others use another fancy term called sabermetrics. Sabermetrics is the brainchild of Bill James, who uh, came up with these different metrics to, to, to measure how a person does this and that and the other thing. Ultimately, what sabermetrics is seeking to do is to measure a player's past performance in order to predict their future performance. Now, the results of this kind of a system are mixed. Sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes sabermetrics produces a projection that is in line with the uh, future projection of a particular player. Um, but what it can't do is what sometimes the eyeball test can do. And I'll just use one exhibit. Poor, poor guy. I feel bad I'm going to bring up a, someone's name. But a man named Rick Porcello. Last year, the Red Sox traded for and signed to a $20 million a year contract, Rick Porcello. Sabermetrics likely projected that he would be a good pitcher, above average. In fact, um, to give someone $20 million a year, you're thinking he's going to be at least close to elite, like top of the game, this guy's going to really knock him dead. The eyeball test, on the other hand, would have prevented such a trade and signing. For instance, the first half of the previous year before the trade, Rick Porcello was lights out, one of the better pitchers in the league. Second half of the year, not so much. They figured him out. He lost a little bit of his groove. Um, the eyeball test tells you he has maybe average to above average pitches. He throws a little faster than average, not a lot faster. His curveball is pretty good. When he keeps the ball down, his pitches are pretty good. Well, his uh, performance last year was a bit difficult. Sabermetrics cannot take into account a person's ability to adapt to new surroundings. Sabermetrics cannot take into account whether someone, and I'm not saying this has happened to him, has an unknown injury or has a slight change in their eyesight. Do you know that a baseball player, if their eyesight changes just a little bit, it impacts how they see the, the little seams on the baseball? The seams help them see, oh, is this going to be a curveball, a slider, is this a fastball? What kind of a pitch is this? So they're looking for the seams as the ball is coming in. If they can't see that, they're guessing. Guessing is not good when it comes to trying to hit a baseball. Sabermetrics can't predict any of these kinds of things. Why are these things so hard to predict? You want to know why? They're dealing with human beings. At the very essence of human nature is variables. Humans are variable. Are they in a good mood or a bad mood? Did they have a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep? Are they sick? Are they feeling great? How's it going? Variables. You can't predict everything with regard to a human being. On the other hand, and very much to our happy, happy response, when we are looking at God's track record, we can predict how he will deal 
in the future by how he has dealt in the past. We can predict how God will deal in the future based upon how he has dealt in the past. He is unchangeable. The Bible tells us in Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, uh, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So God doesn't change. This is a very, very happy thing. Habakkuk, having considered God's responses to his first two complaints, has a new understanding of God's plans and his dealings. And now, as we approach chapter 3, rather than complaining about God's actions or inactions, Habakkuk has embraced God's plan and now prays that God's plan would be accomplished. Listen to what it says in verses 1 and 2 of Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Sigianoth. Now there's a great word for you. I want to give you some deep, deep insight. Ready? Nobody knows what it means. In fact, I didn't even pronounce it correctly. It's Shigianoth. And it's probably not even correct in pronunciation. But nobody knows what it means. Probably what Shigianoth is, is some kind of a musical notation. But we really don't know. On to better things. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Here's the long and the short of it. Habakkuk says, I was complaining. And I, and I complained to you, and you talked to me, and I was, I was afraid. <laughs> but what I want from you is for you to do what you said you're going to do. Do it in the midst of years. Do it now. Bring about what you said is going to happen. So now Habakkuk is in agreement with God rather than complaining. He says, bring it to pass. And then he just kind of throws in this nice little thing before he finishes that portion in wrath, remember mercy. You know, don't bring it too hard. Don't bring it too heavy. Remember who you are. Now, I don't know why a person would have to tell God that, but that's what he said. He's inspired by the Spirit. He says, in wrath, in your wrath that you're bringing, remember mercy. Now, that is not my favorite Hebrew word, chesed. chesed. That, that's covenant, loyalty, steadfast, long-suffering, steadfast covenant loyalty. That is, it's a different word for mercy. It just means don't bring all the heat. Don't bring all the heat. So in your wrath, spare some of it. But he's asking God to bring this to pass. So he's, he's in agreement with God. His, his attitude has changed quite a bit. His perspective has changed quite a bit. And I think that's very helpful for us to understand that, you know, we're not, we're not God. I am the Lord your God. I don't change. Well, I can't say, I am the Lord your God and I don't change. I do change. So do you. Human beings by their nature are variable. And so Habakkuk goes from complaining and complaining some more to now, okay God, I see. I understand. I, I've come to grips with, with what you've said. This is, a, this is a happy thing to see someone adapting and understanding and recognizing we change our perspective. As part of Habakkuk's prayer, he recounts that God has appeared in history, and that is a proper basis for welcoming his presence in the present trouble. Now, this is so important to our understanding this text. Habakkuk is remembering God's appearance in history, in the past. And he's, he's really, in his prayer, proposing it as a... Uh, a good response to seeking God's presence for the present trouble. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 3. God came from Timen, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. I want to tell you something deep. Ready? I want to tell you something deep about Selah. Nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> 
the best we understand is it is, again, a musical notation, and it has the idea of stopping and meditating. It almost serves like if you were to read a piece of music, which many of us don't read music, I call them little bubbles. They're notes. I call them bubbles. There are these funny little squiggly things in there. They're, all, they're called rests. Okay, so you're sing, 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 sing. You see the squiggly little thing? You stop. What's the reason for that? Well, so that people don't get drowned out by the words. No, it's supposed to be a little pause so that you can kind of digest the last line. Now, I would say a sila here is probably going to be digesting longer than one of the pauses in one of our modern-day songs because those really don't give you a whole lot of time for thinking. It's just kind of catch your breath and go on. But a sila is stop, meditate, and understand. Outside of the Psalms, sila is only used here. That is my understanding anyway. That's what I've... Uh, I haven't found it anywhere else, and I've read also that it's not doesn't appear anywhere outside of the Psalms except for here. So Habakkuk is writing, and he wants us to, to really stop after this portion. He's going to tell, say Selah again two other times in this chapter. Why is he stopping here? This is a very important part of what he's, what he's praying about. He says, God came from Teman. Teman. Now Teman, so far as we can understand, is related to this area of Edom, you see this down the bottom here, it's, it's in yellow. It kind of wraps up a little bit to the eastern side of the Dead Sea, which is to the east of Judah and Jerusalem, and it's down below it. Okay, So God appeared in Timon, that's Edom, and it says he also appeared in Mount Paran, which is part of the the Sinai Peninsula, and it really probably is a reference to Mount Sinai. And I want to just show you a quick little thing here. You see over here, the Goshen, the land of Goshen, not to be confused with the Atlantic Ocean. It's the land of Goshen. This is where the, the people of Israel went during the famine. After um, the famine came in and Joseph was ruling in, in Egypt, Joseph's family, about 70 of them, came in. They started living in the land of, of Goshen. And they, they were there for a number of years, some 400 years. And in the process of time, you'll remember that a king rose up that knew not Joseph. And he started to oppress the people of Israel because he was concerned that the Israelites would outnumber the Egyptians and overtake the land, and he didn't want that. So they started to produce servitude and really put the, the Israelites in bondage. When God brought the people of Israel out of Goshen and Egypt... They came down here, crossed the Red Sea, and they hit Mount Sinai where God gave them the law. What's the point here? What we note here is this, that God was with them from their departure, departure from Egypt, where he gave them the law, and then Edom is the first place they're going to pass through on their way to the promised land. What does that mean? What does that, what, what does that do for us? He's telling us that God was with them from their bondage, through their release, all through their wanderings, and then as they enter into the promised land, God was with them. That matters a great deal, doesn't it? So here is Habakkuk. He's talking to the people of Israel, writing this book, but it seems they're only getting it after he's interacting with God, but it was intended for the people of Israel. And, and, and so Habakkuk in this record, complains to God about the, the unrest and the ungodliness in Israel for their lack of obedience to the law and following their covenant God. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment, don't worry. I'm going to bring judgment from the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk complains, what do you mean? They're not even as righteous as we are. You're going to bring them in here. And God gives him some information as we go through the end of chapter. Don't worry, I will judge the Babylonians as well for their sinfulness. Now Habakkuk has come to terms with God and has come to terms with the situation. And he says, okay, God, bring forth what you're going to bring forth. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you. Just be merciful. And then he reminds himself in prayer. He reminds God in prayer. And then those, his readers in prayer God was there. He was there in your bondage. He was there when you arrived at the Red Sea. 
and you didn't know where to go, and the Egyptians were behind you. He was there. And God was there on the other side of the Red Sea. And God gave you the law. And God was there as you wandered around the wilderness because of your disobedience for those 38 years. God was there, and he fed you. God was there. He clothed you. God was there. He led you. And God was there, friends, when you arrived in the promised land. God was there. So he's remembering this. And it, it very much relates to his current day situation. Because here we are in a perilous situation, he says. The, the Chaldeans are coming. But God's here. God's here. God has entered into our troubled scene. Together, the two areas refer to God coming in the past when he gave the law and led the people of Israel through the wilderness. When God comes, listen, when God comes, his arrival is marked by numerous characteristics. And I want for us to see these character traits or characteristics that are demonstrated when God arrives on the scene. We'll see it as we read through the next portion of the book of Habakkuk chapter 3. First of all, God's arrival demonstrates his glory. God's arrival demonstrates his glory. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. What's he, what's he getting at? When, when God arrives on the scene, there is no mistaking it. Now, we're talking about something visible here. If you were to look at, say, uh, Ezekiel chapter 1 or Revelation chapter 4, and you see an appearance of God, what you'll notice is this. First of all, God's appearing is indescribable. You'll see the word like a lot. Like. Not like, I like that. It's kind of like, well, when I saw God, it was kind of like this, and kind of like this, and kind of like this. That's what you're going to get in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4 because it's indescribable. There's no way to say, this is who God is like. This is what he looks like. Let me give you a, a detailed description. It's indescribable. He is indescribable. Secondly, what you'll note as you read those passages is that he is brilliantly bright and beautiful. When God appears, he appears in glory. He demonstrates his glory. This is so important. Now, in Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4, there's a visible appearance. There's something that, that can be seen. When God invades our troubled scene, he may not and will not bring forth this kind of visible display of radiant light. He won't. You're not going to see some vision. If you do, you probably had too much to drink or maybe too much to eat before you went to bed. But he will bring forth his light into us. In fact, friends, he will enable us to display the light of the world. Think about this, friends. God tells us that in, in the very beginning, John chapter 1, that when there was nothing, Jesus, the Word, was with God, and the Word was God. There was nothing that was made without him. Everything was made by him. Then he talks and he, and he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his what? Glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then he says in verse 18, no one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten of the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has what? declared him or made him known. He has demonstrated his glory. And you know what? Later on in the book of John, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The light has appeared, hasn't he? He's appeared gloriously, demonstrating God's glory. In fact, the book of Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 tell us that he is the brightness of God's glory. And you realize this, if you know Jesus as your Savior, that light of the world dwells in you. And you know what will happen as you yield yourself to that light of the world? That light of the world will radiate through you, and God's glory will be seen. 
See, here's Habakkuk. He's, he's talking about God appearing on the scene. And when he appears, he appear, appears gloriously. And you know what? It's true today. You might not see some visible sign, some visible light. But as God's people walk in the power of the Spirit, there is the glory of God in living color. This is the way it works. Right in the midst of our troubled scene. Secondly, we want to note this. God's arrival demonstrates his power. God's arrival demonstrates his power. At the end of verse 4, it says, And there his power was hidden. In other words, it wasn't fully manifest. Now, verse 5, Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. The word fever there is the word for plagues. So pestilence before, plagues after. Anyone have any suggestion as to what he's talking about? Where did he appear? Timon, Mount Paran. What is it? Edom, okay, Mount Sinai. We're talking about Egypt. God demonstrated his power in delivering his people from the land of Egypt. How did he do it? By plagues and pestilence. And what was God doing? Well, first of all, delivering his people. But secondly, he was doing something else. He was dismantling any faith that anyone could ever have in the pagan gods of Egypt. He assaulted the gods of the Egyptians by dealing specifically with how their gods were known. And so God demonstrates his power. He dismantled the Egyptians' confidence in their pagan deities. God's power, did you know this? God's power is on display in our troubled scene when he breaks the mastery of sin over us. All you need to do is read Romans chapter 6, particularly verses 11 through 14, maybe 11 through 18 might be even better context for you, where God tells us that we are no longer slaves of sin. That's God's, that's God's power being demonstrated in your, my, troubled scene. In fact, uh, to, to take that thought a little further, in the book of Philippians chapter Three, Paul makes it known in his testimony that his desire was that he would know the power of Jesus' resurrection. The same power that God displayed in raising Christ from the dead is available in the life of the believer to overcome ensnaring sin. Did you know that? You know, so many people love to memorize a particular verse in the book of Hebrews. And I love to memorize it too, but not for maybe for the same reason that some people try to use it. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's this word about a besetting sin. Now, I'll mind you, God never says, hey, cling to that thing for dear life, so that when anyone ever says anything about your sin, just say, hey, it's my besetting sin. That's the way people use it. Not everyone. Maybe not you. I hope not you, but that's the way people use it. I have this besetting sin. You know, God says it's okay. No, God never talks about our sin and says, that's okay. God talks about our sin and says, in his loving kindness and his mercy, he has forgiven it through Christ. Yes, he does say that. But the point of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 is to lay aside every sin and the weight that doth, uh, every weight and every sin that doth so easily beset us. Lay it aside. Don't allow it to, to keep you in bondage. God has given you freedom through Christ. As a believer in Jesus Christ, there is not a sin on this world, in this earth, that should ever have hold over you. It shouldn't. When does it? When I am my boss. When I am my king. Then my sin can and will control me. But when Jesus is my king, when the spirit is in control, there is not one sin that can grab onto me and say, you must do this. He's broken the power of sin over us. Sin can no longer master us unless we say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Instead, we must say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Help me. And you know what happens? God's power is manifest in us. When God arrives, he demonstrates his power. Let's look, move a little further. God's arrival thirdly demonstrates his ownership. This is very interesting. We're just going to look at the first line of verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. 
And you think, all right, when's the last time someone, without permission, came into your yard and took out their measuring tape and measured your foundation all around? And then they went over to your garage and measured it, and they started making plans for how they were going to utilize all this space. Anyone? I don't think, how would you take to that? Someone coming in and measuring your property and say, oh, I've got all these plans I'm going to do. To, you know, I'm going to rearrange this. I've got all these plans. You would say, no, I don't think so. The person who stands and measures something is its owner. And God stood and measured the earth, meaning I own this thing. Well, just so, as God says this here, when God enters our troubled scene, it is as the owner of our very being. We need to know this, friends. When you, when you say, God, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I need him. I want him. Save me. You know what you're doing? You're signing up. What are you signing up for? He's my God. He's my king. He's my sovereign. He's my Lord. This is what you're signing up for. You're saying, you are everything. I need what you have. You can take what I am. This is what, he's, what you're signing up for. Now listen to a couple of passages of scripture. Now people utilize this and have over the years to, to like browbeat people into it. I, I don't look at it like this anymore. I, I look at this passage and I think, yeah, th this, this thrills my soul when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, where the Bible says this. And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This is a glorious thing that God is willing to take this nastiness and say, I'll take that as my own. Listen, I'd like to trade it in right now. I've had enough of my uh, degenerative disc problems and my neck and back and, a, and, a, and an arm that doesn't function the way. Well, I've had enough. I, I don't, I don't, this is no great deal here. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't trade for this one. But God says, I want that one. I want you. That's impressive. Think about all of your frailties. God says, if you're his, are you his? You belong to him? God, I want that one. I want that body. I want that mind. I want that soul. I want that spirit. This is awesome. God stood and measured the earth. Listen to what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance. How long until the redemption of the purchased possession? What does that mean? Until it's done. He's the guarantee until it's done. To the praise of his glory. God said right here in this passage, when you trusted Christ, he signed his name on you. He wrote his signature on you and says, That's, this one is mine. No one can take this. He's claiming ownership of you. Not like, Master and Lord, I will, I will rule you and dominate you. No, you can't take this. This is mine. Get your grubby fingers off of it. That's mine. This is good news, friends, when God stakes ownership in us. When God arrives on the scene, he doesn't ever arrive in second place. He doesn't ever arrive as the underling. He always arrives as the owner. This is good news. Why? Because we're in trouble. When you own something, you're responsible for its care. When you're fence falls down, who's going to fix it? When your tree falls, who's going to fix it? When your engine has the check engine light on, who's going to take care of it? If you own that thing, you've got to take care of it. Here we are. We're surrounded by trouble. Here they are, surrounded by trouble. But God, God arrives on the scene and he's taking measurements. I, I own this thing. You say, oh, you know what? The owner's taking care of it. I'm not the owner. He is. So freeing. 
to know who your God is and to know that he has arrived on the scene. Fourthly, God's arrival produces reverence. God's arrival produces reverence. Look again at verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. So this is, this is really cool. Um, this is a poetic expression. He's, first of all, he talks about nations being startled by his arrival. But then he starts to talk about inanimate objects. He, he's talking about immovable mountains running and timeless hills bowing. Did you know that hills don't bow and that mountains don't run? Did you know that? What is God saying? Well, these things, you're looking at them as immovable objects. You're looking at them as, as timeless uh, entities. But I, I want to tell you, when I arrive on the scene, they move out of the way and they bow down. He uses the same type of expression in Job chapter 9 and verse 5, and then in Psalm 97 and verse 5. Both of these places capture similar expressions where the hills and the mountains cater to God's arrival. What is he saying? Even they know. Even they know how majestic he is. Even the hills are reverent at the sign of God. Now, this brings us to, I'm going to just try to make this very, very brief, but I've, I've tried to drive this point home, and I want to try to drive it home again. You see the expression in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. It doesn't mean we're frightened and we need to run. It means a surrender of our will to him. What you'll notice, if you were to follow around, everywhere it says in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. And you look it up, look at all the results. What, is, what does it mean? What does it do? What is the result of the fear of God and the fear of the Lord? You'll, you'll find out that it parallels the New Testament expressions for walking in the Spirit, for being filled by the Spirit, walking by faith, walking in grace, walking in the gospel. The result of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is the same as the result of being filled with the Spirit in the New Testament. So when God arrives, our, our, we, we recognize his authority, we recognize his power, we recognize his, his, his um, what was the first point? Glory. We recognize these things. And, and what do we do? We say, Lord, you're God, not me. And so we surrender our will. There's a reverence that comes. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, we need it, by which we may serve God acceptably, listen carefully, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So the, 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 the writer of Hebrews is letting us know that when we recognize who God is, there is this, this necessity of reverence, this necessity of surrendering our heart, mind, and will to him. So when God arrives on the scene, there, there's reverence. There's a willingness to surrender our will. And you know what happens when we surrender our will to God? It's one word, ready? Fruit. Fruit. You find that fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. Love, joy, peace, etc. We know the list. That's what happens. It's God's fruit, not my fruit. When God arrives on the scene, he demonstrates glory and power, and he demonstrates uh, reverence, or produces reverence, and he demonstrates his ownership. Fifthly, when God arrives, his arrival impacts those nearby. Now, this is kind of obscure. What comes in verse 7. It's very obscure, uh, but it obviously is a point that God wants to make for us. In verse 7 it says, I saw the tents of Cushan, Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. This guy seems like, what are you doing to us? <laughs> what do you mean? But both of these groupings of people, the Cushites and the Midianites, it's understood to be nomadic people. They're nomads. 
back when I visited Israel, it was in the year 2004 or 5, the beginning of 2005, we'd be driving along and, the, and our tour guide, Boaz, would point over there and say, there, there are the Bedouins, and you know, just the Bedouins, he, he would point to, they, were, they had these tents and they would have like this camp that they would set up and they would just kind of move it around. It's easy to do that kind of thing in a kind of a hot area. In freezing cold area, you don't really find too many Bedouins. But nomads, they, they just live off the land, and then when that's all exhausted, they move to another part and they do that. What my understanding of this passage is, is this. These nomadic people who don't have really a land of their own, they're observing what's taking place in Egypt, and they're observing what's taking place as the, the people of Israel are moving along, and they're saying, uh-oh, I hope we're not next in line. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. One commentator wrote this. These two lands are pictured neither as Yahweh's foes or friends nor uh, as his enemies, per se. They are simply portrayed as nomads encamped along the line of march of a terrifying army, fearful that it might turn its attention to them. Well, what do we do about this? Here we are, God arrives on the scene and people that are observing it are afraid. What, what I think you can notice is that people, when God arrives on the scene, are not unaffected. They're not unaffected. I want to notice a couple of passages of scripture with you, please. Hold your hand here. I'm going to come right back. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I am sure that you have experienced this, that, that you've... If, if you're a believer, you've experienced what is being said here, maybe not specifically as it's stated, but at least in general. When you come to the place where God invades your life, in other words, he saved you, and then he indwells you, the people near you, they can't not notice. They can't not notice. If you've come to Christ and nobody around you has noticed I don't mean to be a judge, but I don't think you probably came to know Christ. Because when God enters the scene, people notice. And God enters into every one of his children. So if the people around you haven't noticed, I might submit to you with caution and reverent fear that I don't think you've come to know Christ. Because you can't be unaffected. And those around you can't be unaffected by his arrival in your life. Take a look at what it says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God what is he saying when when the gospel came to you it had its proper impact and when it had its proper impact those around you believers and unbelievers alike said I've been impacted one way or another this is what happens when God arrives on the scene. Those nearby cannot be unaffected. Now, to, to say it another way, and we're not going to turn there, but I'll remind you of a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, talking about the diffusing of the gospel, the dispensing of the gospel. The Bible says there, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life, leading to life. What is he saying? He's giving us an image, and I've shared it with you several times, of, a, of a, an army returning home. And when they return home, they have captives. They've got prisoners of war. And as they come into their hometown, the people are lined up, and they're having a party, and they're, they're, there's fragrance in the air uh, of of sacrificial aroma, and as they come in, the soldiers are feeling great because they know what that sacrificial aroma is, and it's like victory is what it says to them. But to the prisoner of war, they know what's coming on the other end of this, and that is death. 
It's a different smell altogether to them. When we smell the gospel, it's like life. When an unbeliever smells the gospel, it's like death. But they're smelling something. If they're not smelling something from you. When God arrives on the scene, he arrives gloriously. And he wants to live that glory out through you. When God arrives on the scene, he does so powerfully. And it impacts the, the uh, mastery of sin in our lives. When God arrives, he arrives as owner. And he's changing things up in that one he owns. When God arrives, there is reverence. When God arrives, he impacts those nearby. Sixthly, head back to Habakkuk. I told you to hold your hand there, so you're there, I'm sure. Sixthly, God's arrival defeats, now I, I added an adjective here, spiritual adversaries. For them, it's physical adversaries. For us, spiritual adversaries, okay? So I, I, I went to the application in the point. When God arrives, he defeats spiritual adversaries. Now look at verses 8 through 15. We're going to read the, that whole section there and try as best we can to peck through it quickly. Verse 8. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. Now, so he's talking about when God came in judgment. And he says, let's, let's think about this for a minute. God, were you angry? Were you angry with the inanimate objects around when you came and, and the, the rivers were impacted? Now think about times God used rivers. Remember the flood? Anyone? Were you mad at the, at the rivers when you brought the flood? How about when God turned the, the water in Egypt to blood? Was he, were you mad at the rivers? The answer is no. No, the water didn't do anything. Verse 10, you divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. We have a reference to a flood. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. Anyone remember anything about a sun standing still? Day of Joshua, remember that? God, when God arrives on the scene, we've got these kinds of things taking place. At the light of your arrows they went, and at the shining of your glittering spear, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with his arrows, the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. They rejoiced, excuse me, their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. We're going to stop right there. What, what is happening? What is happening? He's talking about the fact that when God comes in his, in his judgment, nothing stands in his way. When God comes in his judgment, he comes with, with arrows and they hit their mark. When God comes in judgment, he turns the traps that other people have set for others back on themselves. Hmm. Who are these people that, that, that are being referenced as being judged? They're the adversaries of God's people. And so what does this have to do with the people of, of Israel in Habakkuk's day? Well, they're in sin. God's bringing a people against them. Who are they? The Chaldeans or the Babylonians? God says, I'm going to judge them. Here you are in this present distress. When God arrives, he defeats our adversaries. That's, that's really what he's saying. There's a lot of, lot of information, a lot of imagery, a lot of references. All God is saying is, when God arrives on the scene, he defeats our adversaries. When God comes in anger, it's for our against our adversaries. Now, with, with that being said, as God defeated Israel's physical enemies through physical means, what do you think the rest of the statement's going to be? God defeats our spiritual adversaries through spiritual means. I want you to turn to one other passage, and then we're going to come right back here, okay? So Ephesians chapter 1. 
Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have, we have the setting of the stage in verse 3. He's praising God. He's giving a, a statement of God's glory and who he is in verse 3, right through verse 14. We're only going to read verse 3 here uh, to pick up on a couple of thoughts. And then we're going to go to the end of Ephesians for just a moment. Verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessings, blessing, where? In the heavenly places. Through whom? In Christ. Okay, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, where? In the heavenly places. How? Through Christ. Look at chapter 6 now. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong. Through what means? In the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against whom? Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. Where are they? What else was in the heavenly places? What? Our spiritual blessings. Our spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places. And what is there to try to prevent us from enjoying them? Hosts of wickedness are trying to keep us from enjoying the spiritual blessings that we have through whom? Christ. The one that we have power from to deal with these spiritual adversaries is who? Christ, who is the one that, through whom we have these blessings. I have a question for you. Who's going to win that battle? Who's going to win that battle? Is it going to be Christ, the one through whom we've received these spiritual blessings, or is it going to be the ones that are trying to keep us from it because they're spiritual entities? They've got nothing. He's far above every principality, every power, every might, every dominion, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. Listen, friends, there's nothing that you'll face that God is not adequate to square away. Do you believe that? This is what Habakkuk is telling us. Head back there, please. It's easy to talk about this in church, isn't it? I feel good. You feel, I hope, you feel good about God's victory, God's power. It's so great. We feel uplifted, I hope, by what's being said here. Just know that in five minutes we'll be done here, and then you're going to be walking out the door. You're going to be back to whatever it is you're dealing with. And I wonder, is there any correlation between what we're talking about and what you're dealing with? Me thinks so. I think so. When God arrives in the scene, seventh and finally, God's arrival is for the salvation of his people. God's arrival is for the salvation of his people. Look at verse 13. You went forth for the salvation of your people. Do we need to read anything else? Why did God show up? For the salvation of his people. I have a question for you. Why does God break into history? Why doesn't he just let people duke it out? He's obtaining a people for himself. Throughout the ages, he's been preserving a remnant for himself. He graciously rescues his people from the midst of their enemies, their turmoil, their deadness, and their sinfulness. Just as God delivered Israel from Egypt and the people in the land of Canaan later, God would save his people from the cursed hands of the Babylonians. And taking it a step further, he will save his people from every adversary. Friends, you can leave here with great confidence if you know him. Too many people live in fear. You don't need to be one of them. You don't know what the future holds? I know the end. <laughs> there might be some pain and tribulation and turmoil between now and then, but I know the end. What is it? It's just but for a moment. It's a light affliction. But it's working in us. A far more eternal and exceeding weight of glory. Why fuss about the trouble? It's going to come to an end. It will, I promise. It'll come to an end. I guess the question is, you know, do you know Christ? 
Because if you don't know Christ, one trouble ends and a worse trouble arrives. A worse trouble. Like nothing you've ever seen. You've never spent a day. You've never spent a day without the glory of God surrounding you. You don't know what it's like. You might not even believe that there is a glory of God. You might not even believe there's a God, but you've never spent a day outside of his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You don't know what it's like to be outside of that sphere that he saved you in. You don't know what that's like, but there's a day coming. If you don't know Christ, you'll spend your very first moment not knowing that there's a God and that there's, there's his glory inundating you, protecting you, gracing you. You have been, if you're an unbeliever, you've still been graced every day of your life. Do you know that? You don't know it. Every day of your life you've been graced. But you know what? If you don't know Christ, if you don't come to know Christ, that, that grace will come to a screeching halt. And you'll experience, you'll experience an unmixed dose of God's wrath. Why did God enter the mix to save us from our sin, to save us from our deadness, to save us from our peril. This is why he sent his son to the cross. I want to ask you, has God entered into your troubled scene? Has he? If so, he should be demonstrating his glory in your life. If so, he should be demonstrating his power in your life. If so, he should be demonstrating his ownership in your life by means of his spirit. If so, he should be demonstrating a measure of reverence in your spirit. If so, he should be making an impact on those nearby you. If so, he should be displaying his power over a defeated foe in your life. And if so, verse 16 should be true of you. When I heard, my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself, listen, 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 that I might rest in the day of trouble. What does he mean? What am I going to do? I'm not going to defeat the foe. I'm just going to rely on the one who can. And you know what he's going to do? When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. In other words, he'll bring justice. Just let him do his thing. Rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good. We rejoice in all you've done for us. I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room that does not know Jesus as their Savior, that even today you might, by your gracious and powerful hand, save them. In Jesus' name.